0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our Topics in Drug Testing podcast series. My name is Frank Samaro. I'm the Director of Marketing for the Drug Monitoring Franchise here at Quest Diagnostics. I'm super excited about today's episode. It's titled The Clinical Role of Pharmacogenetics and Drug Testing in Patients with Mental Health Disorders. I think you're really going to get a lot out of the discussion. Today, our podcast features Quest Diagnostics' very own Dr. Jeff Gooden. Dr. Gooden is a senior medical advisor for the toxicology and drug monitoring franchise. Dr. Guden will be joined by Dr. Jack Kane. Dr. Kane is the director and medical science liaison also for the toxicology and drug monitoring franchise. And finally, we're super excited today because we have Dr. Ray Lauren with us. Dr. Lauren is the director and medical science liaison for the neurology and pharmacogenomics franchise also here at Quest. Jeff, Jack and Ray, it's great to have you with us today. I will turn it over to you, Dr. Guden, to kick us off and get the introductions going and the discussion started. Thanks so much.
1: Hey, thanks, Frank. And thanks to my colleagues, Dr. Kane and Dr. Lorenz, for joining today. So, as you saw from the title, today's podcast will focus on clinical care for patients with mental health disorders. And I'd like my colleagues to get into some of the nitty gritty on pharmacogenetics, which we've been hearing a lot about. So, we'll talk about the prevalence of mental health disorders as well as substance abuse disorders talk about the clinical utility of this thing called pharmacogenomics in both mental health and addiction, and then talk about the dangers of medication non-adherence in both of those specialties. So let's just set the groundwork. What are the most common types of mental health disorders? Well, clearly the things we see most commonly are things like mood disorders, anxiety disorders. We see a whole spectrum of psychotic disorders like schizophrenia And then we see substance-related and addictive disorders, things we've called SUD, like substance use disorders, or OUD, opioid use disorders. So what are the prevalence of some of these conditions? Well, we think around 44 million Americans, which is 18% of the population age 18 and older, experience some form of mental illness. Think about that, almost one in five patients that walks through your door. 8% of Americans older than 20 say they've had depression in a given two-week period listen to this number, 20 million people, more than 8% in the past year, had a substance use disorder. And 8 million of them had both mental health disorder and substance use disorder. So imagine what the COVID pandemic has done to the occurrence of mental health and substance use disorders. It clearly has escalated the prevalence. So we know that mental health disorders begin and occur at different stages of life and are more prevalent in certain age groups. And we know that schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders usually start early in adulthood. So this helps us with our diagnoses. So I mentioned before, there's a huge risk for co-occurring mental health and substance use disorders. It doesn't mean you can't have one without the other. And oftentimes it's difficult to tell which one came first. The number in the literature we look at is around 40 to 50% of those with substance use disorders also had mental illness. Now, if you're like me and you've spent some time in uh, substance use disorder clinics, you'll think that number is quite a bit higher. I've seen estimates of upwards of 75% of patients with substance use disorders also had mental health disorders. And one of the scary statistics that I've seen is when it comes to treatment, not everybody with co occurring conditions gets the treatment that they need. More than 50% of patients receive neither mental health care nor substance abuse treatment. So, as a background, now I want to bring in our colleague, Dr. Ray Lorenz, who is running our pharmacogenomics division at Quest. Ray, thanks for joining. Can you give us a little bit of background information on
2: pharmacogenetics or pharmacogenomics? What is it? Sure, thanks, Dr. Gooden, I'm glad to be here and great to be on the podcast. So pharmacogenomics is basically what we talk about when we talk about person's genetics interacting with their medications. And so with looking at genetics, we can actually figure out potentially which medications are more likely to work or not work for that particular person. Um, One of the the great things about pharmacogenomics is that um, we have two types of genes that we can look at. One looks at whether or not how much of the medication is there, whether it's broken down, metabolized, whether it's um, absorbed appropriately, that kind of thing. And then also how the medication works. So there's genetics that can look at both of those things. Um, And so to me, it's really cool because they can help guide our prescribing for certain medications, specifically in mental health disorders uh, to pick a better medication for a patient.
1: Hey, Ray, if you could give us a little insights on, on how does pharmacogenomics influence how, let's say, a clinician might choose a medication for a patient?
2: Sure. So we use pharmacogenomics as we use any other tool in our toolbox. So when we're talking to a patient, we take a lot of clinical characteristics like the nature of their illness, uh, family history, other medications they take what kind of foods they take uh, or eat, what kind of experience they've had with other medications in the past, and also like family history. You know, if your mom has depression, what, would, what did she take when she was depressed? Um, and did it work? And so those are all things we kind of take into account, and we can add pharmacogenomics in as part of that uh, kind of melange, if you will, to make sure that we can use genetics and an objective measurement as part of picking medications for patients in mental health. You know, when we are picking a medication in psychiatry, a lot of times I think of it as trying to find that needle in a haystack, right? So we're trying to figure out, you know, which specific medication or type of medications will work best for that patient. And right now we do a lot of trial and error where we try a medication, if it doesn't work, oh, well, let's try something else. Um, And with pharmacogenomics, we can actually use a lot less of that. And so, you know, that needle in the haystack, um, for me, when you use pharmacogenomics, what it does is that it doesn't tell you where the needle is, but it removes a lot of the hay so that we're able to find that medication a little bit easier. One of the great things that uh, I think about pharmacogenomics is that there's lots of data out there to support its use um, and improving clinical outcomes. It can reduce side effects, it can increase the effectiveness of medications, and then also helps to minimize the gaps in care that we see for a lot of patients where, you know, they may be going to their, for instance, their primary care doctor to get, um, because they're depressed. And then rather than having to potentially go to a psychiatrist, if their uh, pharmacare care physician uses pharmacogenomics, they may be able to pick a better medication for that patient without having to go see a psychiatrist. Um, and to me, those are really good things, especially because we know that um, with the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of things are going on with regard to um, you know, increasing depression rates, increasing anxiety rates, all of that kind of stuff.
1: Hey, Ray, let's step back. You mentioned before you know, the family in this. Is this is pharmacogenomics something that you know someone in your family might say, hey, I take this medicine and it doesn't work for me or it does work for me? Are those things that we should be asking patients about? How did your family members respond to certain medicines?
2: For sure. You can definitely ask those kinds of questions, but they're not as helpful as we would think. Um, and the reason that for that is, depending on how close that relative is, you know you may only have, you know, a, a small percentage of of your genetics that are that are the same as that as that person, even though they're in your family. So the way I think about it is we all have a mother and a father, right? And so just because our mom responded to a specific medication, that doesn't mean that we are because we're only fifty percent our mom, right? We're also fifty percent our dad. And so to me, you have like maybe a 50% chance then of having a response to that medication. Whereas when you use pharmacogenomics, the rate of that is much, much higher as far as picking a medication that's that's better for a patient.
1: That sounds great. I can see how pharmacogenomics really could play a role on, you know, improving the healthcare system as far as helping clinicians with medication selection, trying to avoid adverse effects, those kind of things. So give us an idea, you know, really what's the backbone here? Is this based on chromosomal genetics?
2: Good question. So yeah, it it definitely is. We are all we all get basically two chromosomes, um, one from our mom and one from our dad. And then the combination of that is really what helps us to determine who we are, right. And so we can look at various different types of genes. As I mentioned earlier, the first type, especially in mental health, that can be really helpful are what we call our metabolism genes or metabolism enzymes, which I'm sure a lot of listeners are probably familiar with things like CYP enzymes or cytochrome P450 system. And that's really what we're talking about here. With CYP, essentially like CYP2D6, CYP2C19, Those are two really big enzymes that metabolize a lot of different mental health medications, such as antidepressants, antipsychotics, and anti-anxiety medicines. And so when we look at those specific genetics, we can actually decide based on that how much of a medication to give to a patient or whether or not that patient is going to break it down too fast or too slow.
3: It's Ray, it's Dr. Kane here. I, you know, I've consulted on a few pharmacogenomics cases here at Quest Diagnostics as well. And I'm curious, there's this fascinating one called SLC684, 6 it's a serotonin transporter gene. And it's amazing just how pervasive it is in, in the mental health space. But, you know, the understanding of this gene is still growing. So what does it mean? What, why is it important in this clinical practice setting?
2: That's a great, great question. So SLC6A4, as you mentioned, is the serotonin transporter gene. That is where SSRIs work or the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They work at that specific protein. And it's what we consider a pharmacodynamic gene or a gene that can tell us how a medication is working, not how much is there, but how it works for that specific patient. And when we look at SLC6A4, it's really interesting because there's kind of two flavors of SLC6A4. There's a short form of the promoter and a long form of the promoter um, part of the gene. And when we look at the patients that have this short form of the promoter, what we see is that patients are less likely to respond to SSRIs when they have this short form of the promoter versus when they have this long form of the promoter. And that is something that can be really helpful when we're picking a medication for patients because we can then decide on an entire class of antidepressants, whether or not those are potentially going to work for that patient or less likely to work for that patient. So to me, that's one really good thing that we can integrate with what we know about the metabolism genes so that we can get a fuller picture of how that patient responds to medication. So not only looking at how much is there, but also looking at how much is there, plus whether or not the patient has the capacity to respond. There are a couple other pharmacodynamic genes, I think, that can be important in psychiatry. One type is called the HLA genes, and those are genes that can tell us whether or not a patient's at a higher risk for a serious skin reaction called Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Uh, And specifically, those genes are important for medications like phenytoin, carbamazepine, trileptyl or oxcarbazepine, and lamotrigine. And so all of those can be really helpful, especially for because we use a lot of those as mood stabilizers that can be really good to decide on whether a patient's more at risk or at the normal risk for having this uh, Stevens-Johnson syndrome. One other gene I think that probably should mention as far as a gene that's important in psychiatry is called MTHFR or methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. And that to me is another gene that looks at folate metabolism. So we all take folate in, as part of our diet or as a supplement. And then it needs to be converted to methylfolate to be active in our brains, where methylfolate acts as a cofactor in making serotonin in our brains. And so if we don't have enough methylfolate, that means we may not make enough serotonin. And so when we can look at a gene, the MTHFR gene to find out whether or not a patient may benefit from methylfolate supplementation. Hey,
1: Ray, this is, this is awesome. And I'll tell you, I've been interested in pharmacogenomics for probably a decade already, but most of the evidence that I see is along the lines of where you've been speaking about drugs used in the mental health space and the antidepressants and, and perhaps some of the uh, anticonvulsants and antipsychotics. Talk to us a little bit about opioids and their metabolism and how, to, how does pharmacogenomics affect opioid metabolism?
2: That's a great question. So yeah, I think that um, with opioids, Um, a lot of the opioids are metabolized through, uh, you know, maybe three or four different um, enzymes that we can look at. The first one, the most common one that we see is CYP2D as in dog six. So CYP2D6 metabolizes uh, medications like codeine, tramadol, hydrocodone, oxycodone, all of those. And so the thing here is that while those parent compounds, the, the tramadol, the hydrocodone, are active as pain medications, they generally have to be broken down to a more active form to be more beneficial for a patient, for instance. So for, for example, um, codeine gets broken down into morphine by CYP2D6. And so there could be an issue here if a patient that uh, is, say, a poor metabolizer at CYP2D6, they're not breaking down codeine to morphine. And so they may take uh, codeine and basically get very minimal to no pain relief from that medication because they're not producing any any of the the morphine. On the flip side of that, what you see is a patient that might have what we consider ultra-rapid metabolism or super-fast metabolism through this enzyme. And again, this could be a problem if you give a patient codeine, they're an ultra-rapid metabolizer at 2D6. That means they're rapidly producing morphine from the codeine. And so they're gonna have a way more morphine in their blood, which could lead to things with serious side effects like respiratory depression. And in fact, the FDA does have a black box warning for CYP2D6 ultra rapid metabolizers if, and to not give them codeine because of this, of this issue.
1: It's one of the first things we learn about codeine in medical school pharmacology is, it, is right. it's metabolism. And many clinicians forget all about it. They forget that there's a variant of the population that, that just won't metabolize codeine. So no matter how much you give them, they don't get analgesia. And then the flip side, hey, doc, I took one pill and it knocked me out for eight hours or 10 hours, right? They hyper metabolize the morphine
2: or ultra rapidly metabolize. That's great.
1: Any other enzymes our clinicians should know about?
2: Yeah, I think so. A couple others specifically for opiates. One is CYP2B as in boy six. So CYP2B6 does metabolize methadone. And there are some studies out there showing that Patients that are polymorphic here, meaning that they might have intermediate or poor metabolism, or even ultra rapid metabolism, respond differently to methadone for pain control, but also as far as methadone maintenance treatment and in uh, methadone clinics and that kind of thing. So there are there is some data showing that patients may have differential response based on their CYP2B6 phenotype. The other one that I like to mention is CYP3A4. CYP3A4 is one of the more common enzymes that uh, our liver uses to break down medications anywhere between 50 and 70% of our medications are broken down through CYP3A4. And specifically, the opiates that we're concerned about with this enzyme are buprenorphine, fentanyl, possibly some of the derivatives of fentanyl, and meperidine or Demerol. Uh, And so those are ones that, again, could be polymorphic. Now, one of the things we should talk about too is how polymorphic or how often these changes can occur for patients, right? With CYP2D6, when you're talking about Caucasians, anywhere up to potentially half of patients, especially in mental health, might have changes at CYP2D6 that can make them you know, poor or intermediate or ultra-rapid metabolizers. So. That is something up to 50% of patients could have. With 2B6, it's a little less common. Um, About one in 10 patients might have a a change here. And then with 3A4, again, about one in 10 patients could have a a change here that possibly affects how they break down those pain medications.
1: I'll tell you what, what we've seen clinically is that, you know, if you remember from pharmacology, there are no shortage of 3A4 inhibitors and 3A4 inducers, right? We learn all about grapefruit juice and the HIV meds and the antivirals and the antifungals, right? Yep. And and we see it happen out there where you give somebody a, a medication that blocks 3A4 and they're a poor 2D6 metabolizer. Now, all of a sudden, they're hypersomnolent. They can't be arousable. The family member calls up and says, hey, something's wrong with my mom. Something's wrong with my dad, right? Okay. First thing we ask, what's the new medicine you gave them, right? And we we realized there's a drug-drug interaction. So I can see how pharmacogenomics plays such an important role in the medicines we use every day. Before we get off the topic, why don't you dive into some of the really like super interesting yet detailed OPRM1 receptors, COMT stuff. Give our audience just a little taste about what the future holds for pharmacogenomic testing as far as real specificity
2: with opioids. For sure. So um, as we talked about, you know, we look at metabolism, that's only about half the picture. So when we look at some of the pharmacodynamic genes like OPRM1, which is the mu opiate receptor gene, the best studied allele here is the A118G gene. And so that to me is interesting because patients that have the G allele are less likely to have analgesia from opioids. And so that doesn't matter whether or not you have any blood level or specific metabolism changes or anything like that. If you have this G allele, you're less likely to have uh, pain relief from opioids. And that can be really important when we're talking about patients that maybe come in and are like, you know, I've, I've been taking two of these, like you said, doc, and these aren't working. They're still not working. And this could be a reason why that that's the case. The other flip side of that, though, is that patients that have this GLEL are, uh, have been shown to have be more likely to have addiction or dependency issues with opioids. So it's kind of a double-edged
1: The example I use all the time is, you know, as an anesthesiologist, we bring somebody to the recovery room after a similar surgery, right? You got two ladies had the same surgery, same surgeon, same type of incision, you know, same medical history. One of them takes two milligrams of morphine and they're they're comatose. The other one's on 40 milligrams of morphine and saying, you know, call my doctor. I need more medicine, right? It's just, why are these two patients so different? And it has to do with their genetics, with pharmacogenomics, their OPRM receptors. They respond differently to opioids, If you're a poor responder, it's going to take a lot of drug to respond. If you're a a good responder, it's going to take a little bit amount of drug. So I think clinicians need to understand that there are these variables, interpatient variables, which really affect the way the analgesics work. How about COMT, the enzyme that breaks down our neurotransmitters?
2: So uh, the COMT gene or catechol-O-methyltransferase gene basically produces the enzyme that breaks down dopamine and norepinephrine in our synapses. And the best studied allele is the VAL-158-MET gene or allele. And that shows that if patients have this MET allele, which is the the change here, they may require less opioid doses and are less likely to have addiction if they have this MET allele. And so to me, that's really interesting in that. Not only can we look at dosing based on pharmacokinetic means like metabolism, but also with the COMT, potentially patients might need less opioid doses if they uh, have this met gene. And so to me, that's, again, really, really interesting and and can be very beneficial for a lot of patients.
1: That's great, Ray. Thanks so much. I know there's some information out there on yet another OPRD1. But before we conclude, talk to our audience a little bit about patients who, who get medications for opioid use disorder like methadone and Suboxone. There, is there any pharmacogenomic effects
2: there? there? There can be some pharmacogenomic effects for sure. Um, specifically with methadone maintenance treatment, we're looking at CYP2B as in boy six and OPRM1. Um, both of those can potentially have an influence on clinical outcomes, but the jury's still out as to kind of what that means uh, clinically. And so, especially with CYP2B6, it definitely influences the concentration of methadone and methadone metabolites, but we don't know necessarily how well that correlates and translates to treatment for, um, with methadone in this fashion. Um, And then Suboxone treatment also Some of those pharmacodynamic genes that we talked about, OPRM1, COMT, can influence how patients respond to suboxone. But again, it's less well-characterized, and we don't necessarily know exactly how those changes affect our patients yet.
1: That's great, Ray. So I'll go back to a comment that I made before that I think the science here is much better and more well-accepted for the antidepressant world. So give us an idea about how pharmacogenomics are used in that setting.
2: Sure. So, you know, just talking a little bit briefly about some of the, the data that's out there looking at antidepressants, what we see is that when we use pharmacogenomics over time, patients are more likely to have a response and remission with the medication that we use than they are if we just picked a drug at random or using what we consider, you know, general clinical practice. And so we can see almost a more than a doubling of remission rates uh, for patients if we look at um, using PGX versus not using PGX. And so to me, that's a really great place to, to go. Additionally, um, we can see that over time, patients continue to get better if we use pharmacogenomics than if we don't. Whereas a lot of times we see kind of like a, a plateau of treatment. If, we are, if the patient's on the right medication, they can continue to get better over time rather than reaching this plateau.
1: So, Ray, it sounds like, you know, when we talk about the HEOR, the economics outcomes portion, not just the clinical outcomes, has to be better, right? If you're able to selectively pick a medication that will either have more efficacy or be better tolerated for a particular patient, there has to be some benefits. Talk to us a little bit about that.
2: For sure. So some of the benefits that we see um, in general are less office visits. You get to see more new patients, that kind of thing. But you can also save money for on medications for the patient because they're not switching medications every, every month to a different medication, better compliance. And then also we see that using PGX or pharmacogenomics can actually save medication costs on the order of thousands of dollars a year, depending on whether we're looking at anxiety disorders, depression disorders, that kind of thing to me it's really cool because there are studies looking at whether or not when you use pharmacogenomics if you actually listen to what the pharmacogenomics is telling you versus if you don't you can save even more money over that so to me that's really interesting data that shows that we are able to affect change not just clinically but also economically for our patients
1: you know i wonder if choosing the right medication affects adherence and this is something i know we've been ignoring Dr. Kane a little bit, but this is an area of passion to, to Jack, you know, this, this whole mental health disorders and medication non-adherence. So Jack, talk to us a little bit about the reasons for medication non-adherence, particularly in the pain or the mental health setting.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a good thought, you know, especially as it rolls into the potential impact of pharmacogenomics. But, you know, oftentimes, Dr. Gooden, how many times have you asked yourself Uh, in regards to a patient of yours, like, look, uh, why isn't this patient responding to this medication in a positive manner? You know, whether that be that patient's experiencing negative side effects from a medication, maybe because of accumulation of a medication, because of pharmacogenomic considerations, or is it because the patient isn't taking their medication at all? Why isn't this patient responding positively? And so many providers ask this question, and it's laboratory testing that gives these biomarkers, that gives these markers to assess for not just medication adherence but pharmacogenomic considerations that can impact how well a drug is broken down and processed so you know when we think about non adherence of course you know we're going to think of worsening of symptoms increased risk of relapse rehospitalization suicide attempts, um, increased costs on the patient and the healthcare system altogether, disrupted recovery and risk of self-injury or harm to others. You know, somebody experiencing a relapse while operating machinery, you know, we could think of all these scenarios where where it can be dangerous that a patient's not taking their medication.
1: I have a quick question for you. You know, we talked about pharmacogenomics with Ray and I know that there's drug testing out there where we look at opioids and muscle relaxants and, you know, all the drugs we typically prescribe. Is there any kind of drug testing for the psychiatry world, for the mental health world to look at things like medication adherence?
3: Yeah. So, you know, you heard me mention, is it, you know, patient responding negatively from taking too much of one substance? Well, as you know, you know, there's the subset of toxicology called therapeutic drug monitoring, monitors blood levels, but also just looking for the presence or absence of antipsychotics and their corresponding metabolites uh, in a urine specimen. How do we know a substance passed through a patient's system by looking for that metabolite in a patient's urine specimen. And so that's how we can objectively assess for medication adherence. Now, can we, like in urine specimens, can we say that this corresponds to the particular dose of patients taken? Uh, No, we can't, but we can say this is consistent with a drug passing through the patient's system and it looks like a compliant picture. You know, if a patient is experiencing non-adherence though, you know, using PGX uh, to find a different medication that may have a lower side effect burden, or you know lead to a more uh, effective approach in terms of a treatment plan for the patient it, it can be a solution so pharmacogenomics and toxicology in essence have synergy in expanding that clinical picture of a patient's uh, medication management profile
1: you know jack in just a second i want to i want to ask ray about the pharmacogenomics offering from quest and then i'm going to ask you to just talk about what quest role is in monitoring for controlled substances And and as well as monitoring for things like antidepressants and and antipsychotics. So Ray, give us just a 30 or 60 second overview of what the pharmacogenomics offering at Quest looks
2: like. Sure so our uh, the quest offering has 44 genes on the pharmacogenomic panel and that looks at not just you know mental health medications and opiates and things like that but also cardiovascular medications rheumatology medications oncology medications so it's a kind of a I consider it like a polypharmacy panel so it's lots of different medications that or sorry genes that can affect how medications can be prescribed and so it's a really really great opportunity to get a better insight and an objective measurement on what medications might do better for a patient versus others.
3: Yeah. And so, you know, in conjunction with pharmacogenomics, you know, providers want to ask, is my patient actually taking their medication? And are they also co-supplementing with an illicit substance or a substance that might generate a drug-drug interaction? So we want to see that information. And so we do compliance monitoring uh, for antidepressants, anticonvulsants and antipsychotics, even some of the newer ones, you know, some, some of them have been referred to as the third generation antipsychotics, such as Brexpiprazole and so forth. So uh, we have a pretty you know comprehensive solution for monitoring for compliance to controlled substances and substances that are just important in the treatment of mental health disorders.
2: One of the things I think that's really cool that when I was in clinical practice and seeing patients as psychiatric pharmacists, we would monitor patients' lithium levels, Depakote levels, Tegretol levels, all that kind of stuff. And at that time, I wasn't really super aware of the fact that you can monitor for other medications to, to find out are, are the medications at a good blood level for this patient. And so to me, that's something that is we really should be talking more about is that we can kind of monitor more medications than just your standard mood stabilizers.
1: Of course. And I'll remind our listeners that Quest has no shortage of patient service centers around the country, as well as some new offerings for at home testing. For those of you that still aren't back to full operations in the office where you're doing telemedicine visits, uh, you can't forget about drug tests and drug monitoring for these patients. You cannot let, you know, close your eyes and let them fly blind because we know that non adherence is a very important issue. In addition, one of the benefits of at Quest is. We literally have hundreds of MDs and PharmDs. We have a dedicated, what we call our Rx Tox line for expert consultation, where you can call up and ask the specifics about which tests to order or get some specifics on interpretation of results. And we have toxicologists available at all times. So I'd like to thank my colleagues, Dr. Lorenz and Dr. Kane for joining today for this very informative session on pharmacogenomics. Please keep your ears open for our future podcasts. And I'll turn it over back to Frank Samaro, our moderator, to do our close.
0: Okay, well, thanks, Dr. Gooden. And that does it for today's discussion. I hope you found the information fascinating. I know I sure did. I'd like to thank our experts, Dr. Gooden and Dr. Kane, and Dr. Lawrence, for being with us today and for sharing their information and their expertise. Just, I just have a few notes to wrap up to learn more about today's topic and about Quest Diagnostics drug monitoring offering, please visit questdrugmonitoring.com. Our website here, you'll find information on our drug monitoring test directory and offerings, as well as a ton of educational resources and insights from our team of toxicology experts. Dr. Gooden mentioned our RX RxTox line. I'll just mention it again real quickly. If you have any questions on test ordering or results interpretation, please call our RxTox line at one 877 40Rx Talks. And finally, to listen to this and all of our other podcasts, please be sure to visit questdrugtesting.com or subscribe through your favorite podcast venue. At Quest Diagnostics, we're committed to providing you the results and insight to support your clinical decisions.